0: at WriterWriterPantsOnFire.com. And don't forget to check out the WriterWriterPantsOnFire Facebook page. Give me feedback, suggest topics you'd like to hear discussed, and let me know if there's someone you would love to see as a guest. Make your pages look professional with vellum. Margins, headers, Page numbering, font, line spacing, all happen automatically with every book you create. Generate eBooks for Kindle, Apple Books, Kobo, and others, or deliver a beautiful print book to your readers. Visit trivellumcom forward slash pants to learn more. Vellum, create beautiful books. I'm here with Haley Chewens, and we're gonna be talking about writing upper-middle grade, which can be a really tricky audience age to settle on voice-wise. And a little later on, we're also going to be talking about the process of an r and that's revising and resubmitting, which can be extremely frustrating and uh, high stress. So we're going to cover all those things. But
1: first, Haley, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? My name is Haley Chewens. I am an author. I write middle-grade fantasy books. And my books, like you said, they skew upper middle grade, so they're a little bit on the older side of middle grade, and um, they skew a little bit darker too. So they're fantasy books, but especially my latest book is kind of borderline fantasy horror, dark fantasy. And I also coach writers, help writers to write more intuitively and to get in touch with their unique voice and to come up with their most original ideas ever. And I just also launched uh, an online writing course called 100 Ideas in 10 Days, which helps you to come up with original ideas that are fascinating and interesting to you as a writer. So I do a couple of different things. And yeah, I'm really excited to be here. So thanks for having me. I'm excited to chat everything middle grade and revising. I've done a lot of revising and resubmitting. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Yeah, it's a frustrating place to be. It's like almost there.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
0: So why don't you tell us uh, first a little bit about specifically writing upper middle grade? Because you're right, that is very much an area where you can kind of edge into some darker uh, thematics and even... Push the envelope a little bit with your content. So why don't you talk about writing for upper middle grade and crossover potential for YA and where you see that age range
1: falling? Yeah, so it's really interesting because I didn't set out to do it consciously. But my first book, The Tone Girls, when it got published, it was kind of um, like, you know, they put the age on the back of the book. And so mm-hmm. it was categorized as 10 to 14 which is obviously on the older side, usually middle grade is like nine to 12. I guess it depends on the reader. I don't I don't ever like to generalize and say like all 12-year-olds are like this, so all 14-year-olds are like this. Yeah, so it depends on the reader. So like 10-year-old reader who has a more mature maybe reading um, level or, or just more emotional maturity might get just as much out of it as a 14-year-old reader. Um. So yeah, it wasn't a conscious thing. I didn't set out to go like, I want to write upper middle grade. But I think just the, the themes that I cover in my books just tend to be a little bit heavier. Like the Turn Away Girls is about an island where music is kind of magical and boys are allowed to make music and girls are not. And there, there's a certain group of girls called the Turn Away Girls who are forced to turn music into gold. So obviously it has like feminist themes, but on top of that, it also, the main character has anxiety. I didn't intentionally do this, but my books tend to have mental health themes, even though they're fantasy books. So I think it's mm-hmm. because of that, that they were kind of categorized on more of the upper end. Um, you know, they're not gory. I don't write about like crushes or first love or anything like that, that you tend to think that's more YA. I think it's just kind of the, the heaviness of the theme sometimes more so than like the actual content of the book. The other thing is that my writing style does tend towards the more uh, lyrical. It's not necessarily the most accessible language for, for a 10-year-old or for a 9-year-old. It's actually very mysterious to me because I think as writers, we just create the book and then in a way it's like the publisher's job to kind of categorize and, and market the book. So I didn't query my books as upper middle grade. I just queried them as, as middle grade, um, but it ended up being categorized that way.
0: You're right. At that point, you know, marketing is making some decisions. Publishers and bookstores are making those decisions. And sometimes even librarians and parents are making those decisions. I like what you said about not forming a hard line for age ranges yourself. You're not necessarily saying I'm writing for 13 year olds. I was a YA librarian for about 14 years. I can tell you, as I'm sure you're aware too, there's such a broad range what one 13-year-old can handle The other one simply can't. And so you're right. You would never you would never say this book is for 13 to 15 or this book is for 10 to 12 because the exposure levels for different even vocabulary, but also thematics. it, It can be very different from one child to the next. And I like what you're saying, too, about how you you write lyrically. Lyrical writing can't work for every middle grader. Um, Sometimes they need that cemented rather than being asked to think about larger concepts. I don't know. Again, like you're saying, I really do believe that, that the, it all depends on the middle grader themselves and where they are at. And I know a lot of middle graders do rely on those gatekeepers, like teachers, librarians, and parents to make sure that they're getting what they need. If they need something a little more stimulating, then the upper middle grade can sometimes be a great
1: fit. And I do think there's a sweet spot that gets kind of missed um because of that and and not to generalize about like all 13 year olds are like this or all 12 year olds are like that but there is kind of like middle grade and then there's like this younger YA that doesn't always get tapped into and then like a lot of YA is like you you just plunge straight into like really dark stuff which of course teens need um but yeah there is like this unexplored kind of middle ground area and it's interesting that we call it upper middle grade we don't call it lower YA I don't know if that's just because lower YA sounds weird I don't know well like younger YA I I totally agree that you know children just like adults are individuals they can't really be categorized in terms of age and um, anyone who's ever interacted with you know a group of children knows that not every 14 year old is the same and like you said the emotional maturity the intellectual stuff what that child has also gone through in their life because I remember being 12 and sometimes feeling like reading some books just felt too, too young for me because they, didn't, mm-hmm. or they just didn't resonate with me, even though they were technically written for 12-year-olds. Um, and I, I think the other thing with, with writing middle grade or writing YA that can be quite tricky um, is that when you're writing, you kind of write for yourself and you write for the 12-year-old or the 14-year-old or the 16-year-old that you were. I don't write my books from a didactic point of view. I don't write them mm-hmm. from the perspective of being a teacher or a parent. Um, I really write them as, as a writer and as an artist. And, of course, I tap into how, how I felt when I was 12 or 10. But, yeah, I'm not kind of looking to pass on any kind of message and, I, and I'm not really thinking too hard about, you know, how the book is going to be marketed or, or categorized. Even though, obviously, if you're querying, you have to know that you have to know. I'm writing a middle grade book, or I'm writing writing a YA book. But I think it's something that children's writers maybe have to navigate that. Pe- maybe people who write for adults don't really have to navigate that thing. Like you just write the book. You don't have to say like who it's for necessarily. It's that dance between like the artistry of it, which is like you, you're writing a book that you would want to read. But then also, of course, keeping in mind the age of your reader at the same time. And sometimes that's a really difficult line to walk. And I don't have any clear answers on it, to be honest. I was actually signing
0: some stock this weekend. And the bookstore owner asked me, do you have any plans for writing middle grade? And I said, no, because honestly, I think it's too hard. And I mean that. I don't (laughs) think I could write it. I, I don't know that I can walk that balance that you're talking about. Because I write for teens, I write dark, and I write gritty. And I'm not making any choices that are self-censoring. I write for teens. Uh, I don't have any published books for adults, but I have written books that would be marketed at adults that are as of yet unpublished. And it was the same process for me because my reputation, my brand is that I'm always going to push the envelope And I'm going to be gritty and I'm Mm going to maybe cross some lines. So I don't have to worry about that when I'm writing. It is part of what my reputation has been built into. So I don't know that I would ever be able to ask myself those questions. I think I would be so cautious that I couldn't be honest in my writing. Mm.
1: So I think it takes
0: a very special skill set to write middle grade.
1: Yeah, well, I don't know if it's a skill set or if it's more just that you really connect with that age group. I think that people who write middle grade, most of the writers I know who write middle grade, they just have this feeling of like, I want to write about how I felt when I was 10 or when I was 12. Like they feel very connected to that version of themselves and they can remember it vividly. And they have a sense of deep respect for how it felt to be 10, 11, 12. And it is, it's Mm -hmm. such a different feeling to when you're 14, 15, 16, or 16,
0: 17, 18. Um, Mm
1: -hmm. And it's really interesting that you say that about about middle grade, because I kind of feel like that about YA, not that I wouldn't be able to push the envelope, like not the same problem, but I I, I often feel like I just don't know how I would do it. Like, I don't know how I would write about being a teenager. And I don't know if that's Mm -hmm. just me, like I'm not as connected to my teen self, or if I don't get book ideas that are like suited to YA or, what it is. But yeah, I think it's really interesting how some people just gravitate more towards the one or the other. And then other people can do everything. And it seems like they can just shape shift. I'm very jealous of those people.
0: (laughs) Oh, me too. Me too. I want to circle back a little bit. You mentioned there's no... uh Category such as lower YA, um, there's not. We do use the term clean YA sometimes. YA that is a little more sweet, naive, and I don't mean that in a negative way, but sweet and naive, where their characters are teenagers, but there's no sex, there's no drugs, there's no, uh, you know, usually no language. Uh, clean YA is something that really kind of started surface that distinction has come up like I would say maybe in the past like three years or so. Uh, YA can be very dark and like maybe 10-15 years ago that was really celebrated like look we're really pushing the envelope here and we can go there for teens now and I think that's wonderful because that's where I live but then We kind of, the market in general, really leaned that way for a while. And there were a lot of librarians, I know, and also teens that were like, hey, where's, you know, where's my sweet rom-com? Where's my book that doesn't have someone dying in it? Clean YA has kind of had a resurgence, especially now um, during the pandemic. People need an uplifting read. People need to maybe not necessarily read about something depressing when we're all living it. That's my answer for when you ask uh, as far as age range, we do have that distinction of clean YA, which is for any age, but it's more of a content descriptor rather than an age range.
1: Yeah. And how do you feel about the term clean, um, which kind of suggests that the other kind of YA is, is dirty? <laughs> I'm not uh, sure how I you feel know, about that.
0: I, I don't mind it so much, just because as when I was a librarian, I mean, that was part of what I did, because I did all the cataloging. So while I didn't read every single book, obviously, in the collection, I would flip through. My eyes were very trained to pick up cursing. Uh, I can scan a lot of pages and pick up, you know, drugs, sex, whatever. Um, and I did that specifically, just so I knew, and you know, I had like a mental running what kids are going to want this book, what kids are not ready for this book, um, things like that. Also to keep myself in a uh, good standing with parents and administrators. I don't necessarily have a problem with the word clean because my books are usually called, and I do like the term gritty, which doesn't gritty, necessarily yeah. carry dirty with it. But I think, I think the <laughs> clean distinction is, is um, more of an indicator of we're not going there. And, uh, you know, I respect that. And I certainly don't think that clean YA, that the term is denigrating to like what I write. Um, and also most of the people I know that write gritty the way I do, if somebody wanted to call it dirty YA, I'd be like, Hey, that's fine. (laughs) That markets very well.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I guess I'm more thinking about the teens who might encounter that term. Um, because I'm just thinking about the idea that like certain kinds of behavior are, sure. um, Say, like dirty Marley, or wrong, reprehensible. Yeah,
0: exactly. Sure. That kind yeah, of no, I, um, I get it, and that's a that's a good consideration. I agree. Like, I would never, and I think it's more of something that's of reference for the gatekeepers. Like, I would never hand a book to a kid and say, "You'll like this; it's clean." You know, or I, I would never <laughs> hand a book and be like, "You'll like this; it's dirty."
1: You know, it's like I, I would
0: never make that distinction to them it would just be something that I was privately holding
1: yeah and I think that's why librarians are also so important um, especially youth librarians because yeah you need to get to know the kids who are coming to your library and then and have conversations with them and figure out what books are going to suit them it's such a specialized and important job
0: it is, and it's something an algorithm can't do. So there's a shout out to yeah, my exactly. librarian. Puppet Telegrams brings you custom puppet telegrams for people of all ages. It's the perfect way to send a smile on someone's birthday, anniversary, graduation, retirement, as a get well message or just because. For every paid telegram, an additional one is sent to a child in a hospital or to a classroom in need of ways to liven up the virtual learning environment. Available for all ages, any occasion, from wholesome to edgy, and everything in between. And in the month of October, you can even send a Halloween boo-gram from a puppet trying to be spooky while haplessly holding a flashlight under their face. Send a puppet-gram and lighten someone's day. So let's move on to talk about revising and resubmitting. For listeners who don't know, that's called an R&R. If you get an R&R, what that means is that an agent has read your query. They requested pages, usually requested the full, read it and said, oh, you're so close, but not quite. (laughs) It isn't necessarily rejection. What it is, is an agent telling you, these are the weaknesses. I'd like to see you strengthen them. And come back around, I want to read it again. So an R&R can feel a little deflating, but at the same time, it should be encouraging. It's another step in the ladder. So why don't you talk a little bit about that R&R process?
1: So I was querying the Turnaway Girls. My agent, um, her name is Patricia Nelson. She requested pages and then requested the full manuscript. She got back to me and she said, I really love the voice in this. Like, I love your writing and I love the concept and the idea. Um, But there was some significant pacing and kind of plotting problems. I still struggle with plotting and pacing. I am by no means an expert. But back then, especially, I was kind of still learning how to to write a book and to structure a book. So, well, first she asked, like, would I be willing to do a revise and resubmit? And I was like, yes, of course, I would love to do it she sent me notes and she sent me a bunch of books that she recommended I read. One of them was Save the Cat by Blake Snyder, which is a great story structure book if you struggle with story structure. So I read the books and I did the changes. Patricia's amazing in that she always gives notes that are, she kind of points out, points out what's not working, but she'll never mm-hmm. tell me like, you have to change it in this way. She kind of did that. She gave me broad structural feedback in terms of you know, where the pacing was lagging and like how the the structure of the story wasn't working. And I went away and I actually ended up changing quite a lot of, about the story, um, like about the world too, because I find that when you're revising, oftentimes you change one thing and then you have to change another thing because it's all interlinked and it's all tied together and knotted together. So I'd started doing that revise and resubmit for her and I was very happily doing it. I was really excited to get the notes because um, I'd also heard that you know if agents do that, and this is absolutely true, if an agent offers you a revise and resubmit and sends you notes and they're taking the time to to really look at your manuscript closely and send you feedback, that means that they really are interested in your book. Um, so it, it really is like a close, like you're almost there, but not quite. Um, so mm-hmm. I was happily working away on this revise and resubmit. And I ended up getting an offer from another agent on the original manuscript because I had a couple of falls out. So I told Patricia that that had happened and she was like, okay, just send me like the first three chapters of what you've revised. And I did that. And then she signed me based on those revised chapters. So I actually didn't finish the entire revise and resubmit. Um, if that hadn't happened, obviously I would have finished it and then sent it to her. And hopefully, you know, that still would have happened. Um, she sort of offered me representation. So yeah, she's been my agent since 2015. And we actually work really collaboratively together to this day. And it was actually a really good thing, I think, that that happened because it gave me a sense of what it would be like to work with her. And I just knew that we clicked on an editorial level. But then I did another r later on when we went on sub and got an offer um, to revise and resubmit from my editor at Camelwick. Again, like a very similar experience. Yeah, my editor said she absolutely loved the book, loved The voice loved the world, um, and there were some story problems. And she wrote me a really in-depth revise and resubmit edit letter. I think it was 12 pages long. It was actually really great because it gave me kind of an idea of what it would be like to work with her even before we worked together. The reason why I did it also is because in the edit letter and, and in her email, it was really clear that she really understood the story and loved the heart of the story and just really wanted to help me to make it the best book that it could possibly be. I've had quite good experiences with revising and resubmitting. I did another revise and resubmit actually on a manuscript that I queried before the Turn Away Girls, and that actually ended up in a rejection. So, But that also kind of taught me that I think what happened with that is that I kind of over-revised the book. Um, I don't know if you've ever done that, but... I kind of revised like the book out of the book <laughs> and um, I, it was kind of like unrecognizable by the time, um, by the time I sent it. So, but I do believe like everything happens for a reason. I'm one of those people. So I'm glad that I had that experience because it just every experience that you have like that, when you're querying is just like a nugget of gold because you're learning how to query, you're learning how to interact with agents. You're learning how to structure a story you you're learning how to write the books that you were born to write. And I do think that first book that I queried, like I was getting to a sense of who I was as a writer and kind of what I wanted to say and the kind of book that I wanted to write, but I wasn't quite there yet. So I think that's also probably why it wasn't, it didn't end up being a successful revise and resubmit, but it taught me so, so much.
0: And that really is one of the most healthy and positive and best ways to look at a revise and resubmit is that you just had professional feedback on yeah. your work, and that's some, and you got it for free too. That is something that yeah. is invaluable. And even if a revise and resubmit, because the other thing, and, and it can be a frustrating element of the R and R, is that every editor has their own style. So if you revise and resubmit heavily, like you were, you were just saying, if you revise and resubmit to really kind of fit a particular editor, or, or you revise so deeply that it doesn't have a lot of resemblance to your original concept or your original voice sometimes that can um that can be highly frustrating i actually had an experience and i won't say with which one of my books but it's one of my published books where it was acquired and i had gone through an editorial process and had already done a pass and it was dense like this was not a simple book and the editor I had been working with really wanted things to be a little more spoon fed. I did a version that was more of a walkthrough. I had a little more spoon feeding for my readers, did that edit, turned it in. And in the meantime, this editor left publishing and I was handed to a different editor she was a senior editor. She read it. She got back to me. You're really illustrating some things that I don't necessarily need think need to be. And I said, well, that was because I did a revision based on notes from this other editor. And so the senior editor said, why don't you send me your original manuscript that we bought? And so I did. And she's like, this is the one I'm working with. I like this one better. And I was like, okay, so I had put in a revision in on a book and it was essentially scrapped. But that was okay because I preferred the choices that the senior editor was making as well. It was an interesting experience. It was a little bit frustrating, but at the same time, I learned, you know, not to necessarily write to please an individual.
1: and a a specific
0: vision yeah it's very hard to dissect what is yours and what is being imposed upon your work
1: yeah exactly I think especially starting out like when you're first querying or when you know you're first kind of starting to to write um finished manuscripts and you, you might have critique partners, but at that time also you maybe you don't have a sense. I know I certainly didn't have like a very strong sense of, of who I was and my voice. And mm-hmm. I think this is just actually a general me problem, <laughs> not necessarily just <laughs> a writing problem, but, but you know, like having a, a real sense of conviction about your work is quite hard when you're just starting out and you kind of just, you just desperately want an agent. You want to get published. You want this dream yeah. of yours to come true. And sometimes it feels like, okay, so it, I'll do anything. You know, if you want me to change everything about this book, I'll do it. I get what you're saying that like, even though I always think of like a good answer is really trying to see your vision and then try to bring that vision into fruition in the best possible way. In that situation where you have someone who's just trying to foster your project and, and get it kind of to be the best version of itself. At the same time, they're also individual people, and they have their own individual taste, and they have different ways of solving problems or different ways of approaching the work. So, yeah, it, it is really—it's a really hard line to walk. With each project, you kind of have to know what is the heart of this work. What is the one thing that I that I would not be able to take out because if I took mm-hmm. out that thing, it would die, basically. Mm-hmm. And and that's a really cool idea. But then at the same time, it's like, well, how do I know what that thing is? And I guess sometimes. Yeah you have to just try and have like trial and error and see like, is this manuscript still alive if I take this out? Um, because some yeah. stuff is kind of ornamental almost. I don't know, something that isn't necessarily um, part of the, the nuts and bolts of the story. At the same time, style can sometimes be a nuts and bolts thing. You might, you might mm-hmm. feel like, no, this is the voice of the book and it needs to sound like this. It can't be in very clean, straightforward prose. It has to be like strange pretty prose and that's that's Mm -hmm. what the book is um but yeah it's hard to do that as a young writer I find it hard now, even now I mean I am still quite a young writer to be honest my second book is coming out in a week um and it feels super surreal um but yeah definitely like five years ago it was much harder for me to know like what is me and what is them and and what's what is like the crystallized center of the book and what is like the stuff that I can change and remove and because I've always liked to think of myself as like I'll revise and I'll be flexible I also think that ideas are so stretchy and so capacious um, if you have an idea for a book and it's not working you can always find a way to make it work sometimes that means changing it quite substantially but you can make it work it's really hard
0: It is. It's very hard to do. And especially when you're a younger writer or you're unsure of yourself and what your own voice might be, yet it is difficult. Uh, That's the fine line. That's the fine line. And I think you got to go with your gut. I had an interesting experience when I was uh, querying my first book. It's a post-apocalyptic survival set in a world with very little water. And I had two agents offering to represent me. I'd been querying for 10 years, dying for some attention. And suddenly I had two agents offering to represent me. One of them had only sold one book and one of them had sold like 30 that month. Like it was ridiculous. But the highly, highly successful agent was also more of a romance agent. She represented a lot more of like uh, happily ever afters. And one of the things that we talked about on the phone, my character's love interest dies in the book. Spoiler warning but he dies. And that's because that's how I write. And I write gritty and I write hard and I write rough. And this is a harsh world and you're not going to get a heavily ever after. And she didn't want that to happen. She wanted him to live. I talked to the agent that's only sold one book and she's like, no, I love that you killed him. That was awesome. And I'm like, well, (laughs) you're going to be the better fit for me. Like that's all there is to it. You know, sometimes you just have to ask yourself, like you said, like, what's the thing that you're not going to trade in? And I was not going to trade in a happily ever after. Like, that was not happening for me. Really, it is gut, I think. Whenever you have feedback from an agent or an editor, even a critique partner, you do need to consider it and ask yourself, does this go against my prime core for this book do i feel very strongly about this and then ask yourself why it's like do i feel strongly about this just because i can't accept criticism or do i feel strongly about this because it's the essence of the book
1: is it just my ego like am i just feeling a bit bruised hearing this criticism you have that wish for someone to just be like this is amazing and when they come back and say well actually this is great but this isn't quite working for me or that isn't quite working." You do have to be quite self-aware in ter- and emotionally mature, I think, um, to be like, well, is it just me feeling a little bit like bruised about this? Is it just my e- ego rearing its head? And what I find often helps is that if you just read it first and then kind of step away, give it some time, and then come back, because often the first time you read something, it is difficult to, to read criticism. But if you have a little bit of distance, if you go away for a couple of hours and come back or for a day or two and then come back, you can usually read it a second or third time with a bit more distance. And then maybe you can make more level-headed choices about what to accept and what not to accept. And I also think that it's important maybe, and maybe part of the thing of growing as a writer is understanding what your weaknesses are and what your strengths are. So I'm very aware that like, I have certain strengths. Um, but I also have weaknesses. And so if I get feedback about those weak points, I'm like pretty much always you're like my agent is right or my critique partners are right. Uh, because I yeah, there's just some things that come really naturally and then other things that you have to work really hard on. And I've never met a writer who doesn't have at least one area that they feel like oh, this is like my problem area. Like I just have to work so hard on getting this right.
0: It is hard to be circumspect about your own writing, but you're completely correct that time and distance is what helps make that possible. Real quick, why don't you tell us a little bit about
1: your class, 100 Ideas in how many days? (laughs) 10 days. I know it sounds a little outrageous. Um, It is actually a self-paced course, so you don't have to do it in 10 days. I just thought it sounded really cool to come up with 100 ideas in 10 days. It's about following your intuition and finding your voice and coming up with your most original ideas ever. And it's about how you can make a book idea, meaning not just a new story idea, but like an idea for how to move a scene forward or an idea for a character or an idea for world building. You can make an idea pretty much out of anything. This is my belief in life and in writing. And and I got to a point um, when I was studying Law and suddenly didn't have time to write, didn't have time to read, and I was like, "Oh God, this is actually a really important thing to me. Like, I can't actually live my life without this thing, um, without writing." And that was when I kind of admitted to myself, like, that I really wanted to write books, which meant I had to finish a book um, all the way from the beginning to the end, and which meant that I had to somehow have a book idea. And so, even though I had like this intense desire to write a book, I didn't really have a sense of my own voice or what I wanted to say and I didn't feel like I had any ideas. I didn't feel like my point of view was particularly interesting. Um and at that time I was also reading like mainly adult literary fiction and that's what I thought I wanted to write. And so I wrote thousands and thousands of words, many manuscripts for adults before I started writing for children. I was bored with myself. I had no idea what to write about and I didn't know how to tap into that or how to like of something interesting to write about so that's kind of why i created this course 100 ideas in 10 days is basically four lectures and 10 lessons so they're all audio and written Um, it's an online classroom and so you can log in and do it all in one go or you can do it really slowly you can do it over 10 months or 10 years or however long like however you want to pace it there are four lectures about idea generation and idea development so just like general principles and then there are 10 exercises And each of the exercises helps you to generate 10 ideas. So by the end of it, you have a 100 new story ideas. Even if you start out and you don't really have a vision for your own writing, by the end of it, you'll have a clear idea of what kind of a writer you want to be. I just kind of wanted to make something out of love and put it out into the world. And yeah, I hope that people get something out of it.
0: Let listeners know where they can find you online, where they can find your upcoming book, and also how they can take that class.
1: Cool. Okay. So I'm at hayleychewins.com. So it's H-A-Y-L-E-Y, Chewins, C-H-E-W-I-N-S.com. If you go to hayleychewins.com slash 100-ideas, you'll find the 100 Ideas in 10 Days course. And yeah, my book that's coming out in a week is called The Sisters of Stray Garden Place. It's out with Candlewick Press, the 13th of October, 2020. It's kind of like a gothic, dark fantasy middle grade about sisterhood and forgiveness and family secrets. Yeah, I really hope people people like it. That's me. I'm also on Twitter at haley underscore Chewett.
0: Make your pages look professional with vellum. Margins, headers, page numbering, font. Line spacing all happen automatically with every book you create. Generate ebooks for Kindle, Apple Books, Kobo, and others. Or deliver a beautiful print book to your readers. Visit Trivellum.com forward slash pants to learn more. Vellum, create beautiful books.